The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension where two judges in two different counties order you, my co-host Bruce Barquette, criminal defense lawyer, to stand trial at the same time. A journey into criminal defense whose boundaries are that of the imagination. That's the signpost ahead. Your next stop, Bruce Barquette, The Twilight Zone. And I wished it was a joke, but it's not. <laughs> so let me just ask you, because one of like my favorite things, and this is inside baseball, criminal defense, is watching lawyers that are amazing at getting adjournments. They somehow manage on the eve of trial to get that one more adjournment. And now all the trials are are picking up because of the last two and a half years of having no trial there's so much buildup that we're all being, I just did a hearing last week. I did a hearing a couple of weeks before then, but you, my friend have been ordered engaged on trial by two different judges, two different cases in two different counties, one federal criminal trial and one state Supreme court civil trial. And look, it, it sounds nuts because forgive me, one of the judges is, uh, can I say that? I guess I just did. Well, I didn't mean nuts, but you know, the federal trial is proceeding. Uh, that's the one I'm doing now. Uh, picked a jury last week. We opened today, and we'll continue on with testimony. But then later the other on. one, you picked a jury last week as well. Yeah, we stopped picking a jury on the federal <laughs> case on Tuesday, and I went in to tell the judge on Wednesday, "Hey, I'm sorry, but I have this federal trial, federal criminal trial that I'm doing, which the rules say takes precedence over civil cases." He said, "I don't care. Pick a jury. We'll pass the jury until you're done with the federal case." And so we started picking. We only have three of six jurors in that case. We'll have to go back again the next time I'm off of the federal trial to hopefully finish picking. We'll pick up on that testimony once this trial is over. So I am literally working on two trials at once. And you know that we have more to come. That's right. We have two trials scheduled for the beginning of December. And here's here's what I don't understand. We have a death penalty trial scheduled for March. We have a murder murder trial that we had to put off. And we have another murder trial that's supposed to go. But but here's my question, right? Because this so happens I'm, I'm going to get up and leave now. I'm just going to go prepare. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to finish off the show while you uh, think of your you know so, big well, cross okay, examinations so, tomorrow. Yeah. So what are we going to do for the show? So we have two really awesome guests today, and it's this recurring theme that we have: the media and criminal justice, right? And what the media portrays about someone accused, usually it's so slanted. Oh, wait. Happy Halloween. Oh, yeah. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> the Twilight Zone was supposed to be for yeah. Halloween. I've seen no one in costume, by the way. I went to court today, not even like cute, like cat ears, nothing. I tried nothing. to find an orange tie the best I could come up with that's green. So. Yeah, I'm wearing all black. <laughs> so, all right, there's something. So sorry, go ahead. But anyway, so uh, all these cases these days are, if not on the, the head of the newspaper, online, social media, Twitter, it, it almost seems that 
the accused no longer stand a chance to actually embrace their constitutional right to the presumption of innocence, given how they are attacked by social media and the media generally, not all media. There are some good folks in there. But today we have Ann Bremner, a former prosecutor, an attorney and TV personality, and her brother, Doug Bremner, professor, physician, researcher, writer, filmmaker. Um, And they just uh, came out with a new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment, From Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Battle for Due Process in the Digital Age. So I think that um, they're going to be standout guests. I have a lot of questions for them in particular about current cases like Harvey Weinstein. Talk about no presumption of innocence over there in L.A. He's already been convicted. Can I I say I actually... Um, feel bad for him. You can I can, say that? You can. Can I? Can I feel bad for him? Yeah, you can. That's that's. Can I, can I say that what's happening to him to me seems to be a horrific um, breach of justice, lack of justice, travesty of justice. It just doesn't seem right to me. And I'll give you a small example, and and it's kind of ha ha funny for for or gross if you depending on who you ask at a cocktail party. But once again, they produced photographs of his allegedly deformed genitalia to show the jury. To humiliate him. To humiliate him. And here's the thing. Just the only relevance for that would be if the victim did not know how to identify her assailant. If it was a stranger. Or if if his defense was, I never had sex with that woman. Exactly. And she could say, well, I saw him naked. Right. But generally speaking, when you show like unique characteristics, a birthmark and and so forth, um, it's because the victim doesn't know the party. Here, the parties know each other. Harvey Weinstein is conceding sexual conduct. He's just saying it was consensual. Um, But I don't think he got a fair trial in Manhattan where they brought in all this bad conduct evidence and so much of it. But let's look. And I I do feel bad for him. He was a king of the hill. Nobody likes to see somebody fall that far. He is now in prison. He's been sentenced in New York State to 23 years for himself performing oral sex on one of his quote unquote victims. But and and let me let me say one more thing before I get myself into further trouble. If he was sexually harassing women and uh, kind of trading movie parts for sexual favors, he's a despicable human being, and he deserves some form of reprimand. That, however, hasn't been a crime up until well he got indicted for it. That's that brings me to my point, which is. The problem we're having today from a criminal justice perspective with respect to sexual abuse or sexual assault allegations is that we have a very defined space for criminal sexual abuse and sexual assault. And we have a very defined space for civil sexual harassment. Had very defined spaces. But now there is this space in the middle And sometimes people choose to prosecute it civilly under sexual harassment laws. And sometimes they go to the DA's office. And if the person, the accused, is famous enough, and if there's enough political pressure, and here, thanks to the Me Too movement, there really was political pressure on the DA's office to act, especially Manhattan, where they had had the same complaints 
brought to them in the past, but they ignored them. And I think the New York Times, or I forget what paper, ultimately revealed that the district attorney's office, I think it was Cy Vance, had been talked out of prosecuting Harvey Weinstein. So politically, they went after him and used this sort of gray area between a criminal charge and a civil sexual harassment charge, and with quite creative chops, made it into a criminal case where the statute would otherwise not provide for it. And why I say he had an unfair trial is because the actual count that you speak of, that you said involved him performing oral sex on a woman, was a forcible uh, touching element, forcible. And she was asked on cross, did he physically force himself on you? And she answered no. no. And so, but for the bad publicity, the hundreds of women wearing red in the courtroom, screaming and yelling outside, all of the articles, all of the bad acts that were probably inadmissible, we'll see what the Court of Appeals has to say. I don't think he would have been convicted and sentenced to 24, was it 24 23 years? 23 years in New York. 23 years. And so now we have this other trial that frankly, no one cares about anymore because they're like, he's already gonna die in prison. And if you see his face and you see the the torture that um, a trial and incarceration can be. You don't age well and, in and prison. You don't. And, and maybe people deserve that. And I'm not saying if he actually did rape somebody. Forcibly rape Forcibly somebody. rape somebody. Not trade sex You know, I, I don't take that lightly. We've represented victims of sexual assault. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that's appropriate or right, but there is a gray area in society and we don't know where to put that. And I think legislature needs to take care of that. You, you might be right. There mean, might, might not there might need to be some legislation on it. I don't think it's gray. This was not a crime three years ago or five years ago. I'm going to call you Bruce Team Harvey. Yeah, Barkhead. Uh, it really, it really, it really is. Uh, rape and sex abuse as a crime is a specific intent crime. You have to force uh, someone to engage in conduct that they otherwise wouldn't engage in. You have to know you're forcing them to do it. Some quid pro quo, kind of almost like a. a, a, a prostitution ring for actresses is despicable we shouldn't be doing that he shouldn't be doing that the studio should fire him they should take away his ability to hand out movie parts for that he should be bankrupt right but it is not and if he rapes someone he should be convicted correct, correct. i just don't think but based on the testimony the, that he was but there was no testimony about that like you said yeah. to you did he force you to do it no How, what was the force element then the force element then was well i wouldn't have gotten a movie part if i didn't perform for him or if well, i didn't let I him perform it, on it, me it was it was something Quite like that, but something close to that. And that, I think, is not right. And the judge could have, after he was convicted, sentenced him to four years or three years, 23 years. Yeah. But by the way, that judge is known to be a heavy sentencer. So if you think he sentenced him because of who he is, think again, because he, apparently anyone that comes the before the court, he does it all the time. Um continued theme of media uh, painting the accused as a bad man um, and, you know, undoing that presumption of innocence. I want to briefly talk about a Guantanamo Bay prisoner. We remember all these individuals being corralled and flown back to Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, and 
we understood that they were all responsible in some way and that there was serious proof of that responsibility for 9-11 and other acts of terrorism. And we all thought, okay, you know, that's where they belong. And then we realized that the conditions weren't that humane. Well, lo and behold, the person, one of the people media called bad, has now been released. He is the oldest prisoner released in Guantanamo Bay, 75-year-old Pakistani Saifullah Paracha is finally reunited with family in Pakistan over after more than 17 years. By the way, he was held on suspicion of ties to al-Qaeda since 2003, but he was never actually charged. He was cleared by the Prisoner Review Board under Trump in November of 2020, but like others who were cleared, they weren't immediately released because they said the... Uh, They're going to be really mad at us if we release them. And they no, was, okay there was a standard like it's not it's too dangerous to release them right now without the proper, you know, security in place. Uh, but it, he's finally reunited. Good for him. Well, 75 years old now. That means 17 years ago he was 58. So forgive me, but younger than me by a chunk, by a half a decade. And older than me by a lot. Wow. <laughs> it, it, it is... Uh, horrific to have spent that part of your life in the hell that Guantanamo Bay is for the detainees down there. No due process, no charges ever even brought. An absolute innocent man that our country dragged over to uh, Cuba from his homeland and his family. And the reason why they don't get released right away really is that they're worried that the people are going to be angry and go join a terrorist organization which, uh, you know, after being held for 17 years, you kind of provoked that, didn't you? It, it, it really is a problem with that, that base that was supposed to be closed under Obama. It never was. Uh, and it sounds like the conditions were absolutely horrific. Well, we, we had on, so we had on the Mauritanian. Time. The Mauritanian. We had on um, uh, Nancy. Mohammed. You can remember his name. I can't remember the lawyer's name. Nancy. Nancy Hollander, Nancy Hollander, who played by Jodie Foster, Foster in the Mauritania. Another absolutely innocent person who was held for like eleven years or thirteen years before he was released, and he was like among the most tortured of individuals. His confession was completely coerced, such to such a degree that the government agreed agreed to release him eventually. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of horrific conditions in detention centers, oh, this, this is. is if you heartbreaking read the October 30th 2022 article in New York Times called dying inside chaos and cruelty in Louisiana juvenile detention it's by Megan Schutzer and Rachel Lauren Muller um, it's quite a powerful article and just to give you the cheat sheet on what's been going on in one of Louisiana's largest state juvenile detention facilities. And when we say juveniles, we don't mean, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. We're talking 13-year-olds. There have been 64 suicide attempts in 2019 and 2020. 91 kids have tried to flee. Uh, there's been uh, corroborated, corroborated allegations of sexual abuse for phone privileges, bribery for food to maintain control, beatings, chokings. 42 people held over the last 25 years corroborated the sexual abuse and named 30 staff members, either at least one of whom is still there. By the way, three 
quarters of the kids there are African-American, and the vast majority of cases are for nonviolent crimes. I, when you, have to, you said suicide attempts. There have been a number of successful suicides. Right, and it starts off if, if you, you know, a picture really is worth a thousand words, and I used to complain that America didn't have enough gruesome pictures um, in its newspapers. I think to some degree there was either a policy or it wasn't, it's not that it was illegal, but there was some kind of policy, whereas Europe always showed you the gruesomeness of war, the gruesomeness of kids dying, and that made its citizens care more. And it used to be that Europe was the real you know, uh, nation of protest. And this is a picture I'm looking at of Solon Peterson in 2018. He's a tiny, barely 90-pound, 13-year-old. Um, who committed suicide after a few days. Um, he had been held for days in an isolated bare cell uh, for four days, actually, even though the state rules said he shouldn't have spent a single night there, and the guards who were supposed to check on him every 15 minutes hadn't done so. Um, and that's just horrifying. And look, the, this facility was set up by uh, sheriffs and politicians in northwestern Louisiana. In an attempt to make it more humane, because there were complaints about the previous facilities. It's just unbelievable. There, I, I, I don't want to go off on my good friends in Louisiana, because uh, you know I have in-laws from down that way, not northwestern Louisiana, but in Louisiana. I'm just going to say that the, the view of the penal system from some in the in the, uh, dare I say, the Bible Belt, where the death penalty is often employed, is just outrageous. Um, I don't know how you have these kinds of facilities and how you think it's okay to treat uh, children. And this 13-year-old boy who's 90 pounds is a child uh, this way to the point, and, and, and to give him the ability to kill himself, drive him to that point where he wants to die rather than endure what you're putting him through, and he's in a position where he's actually able to carry that out. Some of the ways people have tried to kill themselves is obviously hanging. Some people took fluid from uh, ice packs and tried to drink it. There's a number of different ways that they tried to, these kids have tried to kill themselves, some successfully. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable thing. Uh, yeah, screws, fluid from an ice pack right, right. It, to try to drown themselves, right. it, some swallowed baby powder. It, it just is. They've used socks, towels, sheets around do, their necks. Do you, we're not going to do this justice in the few minutes we have, but read the article. Go Google it. Read the article. It's, it's, it'll, it's heartbreaking and it, aggravating at the same time. And speaking of, dare I say, um, let me move to the horrible treatment of Thomas Valva. Um, Michael Valva is our partner's client who he's on trial with. And I don't think anyone's disputing that the way these kids were treated and was dealt with horrible. Was, was cruel. The question is whether or not it was murder or some lesser form of homicide, manslaughter, or perhaps like criminally negligent homicide. And there's no allegation that, that Michael Valva intended to kill Thomas. Uh, the allegation is that he did so through depraved indifference. In other words, that he couldn't care less whether the kid lived or died. And that's where the, the kind of the rubber meets the road well, in this case. And this is the interesting, you know, back to the theme of, of media, right? You have the prosecution's case. Their witnesses say, um, this is, this is not, um, this is not 
basically a, a father who cares. He showed no signs of remorse or sadness or tears. But then on cross-examination, the witness will agree or concede that he was sobbing at the end of the interview, right? And interestingly enough, the prosecution and the media's storyline has been that the kid died of hypothermia in the garage because it was 19 degrees that day. And later it came out that it had actually been 40 some degrees in the hours preceding that moment. But according to a defense witness who testified on Friday at the murder trial, the uh, Michael Valva's alleged act of bathing his eight year old in some in warm bath in a warm bath in order to get rid of the hypothermia, put him in cardiac arrest which caused or contributed to the death. So his act of trying to get the kid warm. I'll I'll say this, that the reports in the media about how this trial is is going is not accurate as to how it's actually going. I hope the jurors are listening to the testimony in the courtroom and not reading the newspaper and uh, have the, the courage and strength of character to render a verdict based upon the evidence in the courtroom, not what we've read about in the papers. Speaking of which, we'll be right back after a short break with, the with Ann and Doug Bremner, Justice in the Age of Judgment, right after these news and some weather. Talk to you in a second. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. And we are thrilled to introduce our next two guests, a brother and sister, Anne Bremner, former prosecutor, American attorney, and TV personality, and her brother, Doug Bremner, um, professor, physician, researcher, writer, filmmaker, and president and co-founder of Laughing Cow Productions. They just debuted their new book, Justice in the Age of Judgment featuring a picture of Amanda Knox and with the subheading from Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the battle for due process it is a, in a digital age. An interesting book about um, how the press interacted with the jury system on a number of high-profile cases. Actually, almost every high-profile case from OJ touches on Harvey Weinstein, Kyle Rittenhouse, Casey Anthony, Amanda Knox, and so forth. Welcome, uh, Ann and... Doug. Doug, how are you guys? Good, we're both here. Thanks, Bruce. Excellent, excellent. So, interesting book. I spent a good part of the weekend with it. Um, We've tried some cases that have dealt with local press, a couple of cases that dealt with press from around the country, but really nothing like Amanda Knox or OJ or Casey Anthony, which is another level. And I'm curious what you you think, how the strategy changes when you have national media picking a side in a criminal case. Well, I think that, and and the Duke Lacrosse defense lawyers did this too, but what I try to do in Amanda Knox and some other of my cases that are in the book is to have a a steady drumbeat of facts, 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 and actually release actual evidence, video footage from the scene, crime scene, you know, work that was done, botched in Amanda Knox's case, Um, you know, translations of things that she said, actual things that people can take a look at and go, ah, that's not what the press said. Also, we had a website that was, and then translated, and I think to about twenty languages, that um, for Amanda Knox, where people could look at the real evidence in the case, you know, and we had press kits and everything else. And the Duke Lacrosse players did that, or lawyers did that too, because I know I was on the air talking about that case. They would get a hold of me, 
by email, even back then, and tell me what the real facts were. That's the best thing you can do is to stay on it all the time. And eventually, the press will go your way. We used to call it turning around a super tanker, you know, a false information. But after a while, you know, somebody's going to have to see the light and say, uh, this is not, you know, a satanic ritualistic sex lane like the prosecutor says in Italy. You know, some dynamic witchcraft. It's actually some guy that kills a woman, and he's the guilty one, and he goes to jail. And Amanda had nothing to do with it. So I know it sounds over, overly simplistic, but... You've got to be on it all the time. Well, and I want to give you a little more credit than just uh-huh. pushing the facts, which, as you said, seems simple enough, but is quite critical and important for the public to have. You did something beyond that, if I'm correct. Uh Amanda Knox had a negative image. She was called Foxy Noxy. Um, And as you you mentioned, people talked about some weird sadomasochistic sexual ritual and so forth. But you flipped that switch, knowing who she was and who she was to her family and things about her personality that weren't so fact-driven, but more about who she is as a person. And you went out on television and started describing Knox as naive and comparing her to the title character in the French film Amelie. And that allowed the public to take a second look at the facts. Because if you're, if you hate someone, you're not going to look at the facts. But if you start seeing them described in a different light, then you might get to paragraph two and see facts that actually matter. That's exactly right. And, and you know what, it was all true. I mean, the, the girl we talked about was the one that we described. And helped to help to turn around the press and the public. And the one thing I always said was, "Do you think somebody that had a perfectly normal upbringing that went to Seattle Prep, had good friends, had a good family, never did anything wrong in her life, all of a sudden turned around and participated in this gruesome of a thing? I mean, really? Do you really think that? And you know what? Nobody does. And and you know, it's yeah. It, I was. I think I just start. I had just graduated from law school. I was a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in Brooklyn. And Amanda Knox's case happened right around that time. So I followed it and I was obsessed with it. And I recall them because I'm originally from Europe and I had done a semester abroad at this sort of uh, Europeans think American girls come to Europe and they party hard and they might, you know, go on one too many dates and they're a little wild and crazy. But the Amanda Knox I saw was the one that was playing soccer, the one that had teammates, the one that was goofing off in the field and having birthday parties with friends. And that's the Amanda Knox I related to. So as soon as she's seen in that light, it can change her circumstances. So I'm fascinated by the brother and sister tandem here in the book. Doug, tell us about um, how you got involved in this and and what you think of it. Well, um, just a quick comment about the the, uh, the, the um, opinion. You know, that's one of the things we talk about in the book is this. Once you formed an opinion, it's very difficult to change. So so that was really like turning around a super tanker to change the public's view of of Amanda Knox, and that happens, you know, again and again. My my involvement, um, Bruce, is that uh, I also was obsessed with the Amanda Knox case. I I was reading about it. You know, we talked about it at family dinner. You know, with 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 my sister, and even 
people in her family say were saying, you know, she just looks guilty. <laughs> and then Anne was saying, well, the evidence collection was was faulty. And then I, I started to, you know, read Barbie Nadeau's book, and I was like, oh man, she really must have been guilty. And then I, I my wife is Italian, and we we now have a a farm in Italy, and so and I was trying to study Italian to get Italian citizenship, and so instead of reading Dante, I said, well, I'll start trans translating the the uh, motivazioni, they're called, the legal opinions that are coming down from the preliminary hearings with Amanda Knox. And so I started to do that and tried to post it on some of these websites. And then these forums that were a bunch of people all talking to each other, you know, with confirmation bias, convincing each other that she was guilty. And they recognized my name. They wouldn't allow me to create an account just to post the translation. So I thought, something's really fishy here. And then I started to go back and fact check like Barbie Nadeau's book. And there were all kinds of things that were just they're not true. There were rumors that were on the internet. There was, you know, this sink that looked like it was covered with blood, but in fact it was luminol. It's a chemical that uh, is used to um, detect minute amounts of blood. And in my background is that I've done research on memory and false memory is one of the things I've done. And I've written some about testimony of people with PTSD with the war crimes criminal in the Hague um, was one example. And so I, uh, um, you know, that was my interest. And then I was using some of my kind of medical background to do some superstition on the Madinox case, started reading about the West Memphis three because it was relevant. And then, and then Anne, um, you know, I've written several books. And so Anne asked me to take a look at the book she has now. And what we did is that it, it, it's been a couple of years, but we expanded it. And to include the West Memphis Street, to include George Floyd, to include um, Kyle Rittenhouse and Ahmad Arbery. And, and the question was, what's the common thread that weaves through way through all these cases? And the common thread is the major impact that social media has on these cases in modern times and how people are deciding guilt or innocence on TikTok instead of in a court of law. Well, let me let me ask that very question, because I look at cases like Harvey Weinstein, where the media attention is incredibly negative, right? And he was convicted. And then I look at Kyle Rittenhouse, and I think you posed the question, why was Kyle Rittenhouse exonerated after shooting three people with an assault rifle at a violent rally despite widespread media reports seemingly proving his guilt and national calls for his conviction? I remember the Casey Anthony um, case that you talk about, there was no positive publicity for her. So I see overwhelming negative publicity on Kyle Rittenhouse such, to such a degree that people to this day don't know the facts and think he killed three black people and that he traveled, you know, uh, hundreds, hundreds of, of miles, miles right. as opposed to like 20, which is like Long Island into Queens. Um, but how, despite that negative publicity, did Kyle Rittenhouse or Casey Anthony obtain an, an acquittal? You know, I, I think sometimes the best thing that can happen, you know, for the defense in the, those cases is to get that horrible publicity. And basically it, it backfires because you have a lot of people in Rittenhouse. They were like, the president had come out and said something. I don't know who, all these different people. He's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. And you get the people that are like the, that's the gun people and the people that supported him going, that's not fair. He can't be buried like this. That's really what happened in that case. We covered it before TV. He clearly had self-defense in all three incidences, and which is hard to believe, but he did. And, and, and that's why he went out the door. 
But I think it really backfired the way that he was just um, vilified. And Casey Anthony, I was at that trial. Again, I think that was part of it, too. Those prosecutors didn't have a case. They didn't have, they didn't have a cause of death. I mean, they've made a lot of noise in the press. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is when you build up something in the press or the press does it for you, and then it's kind of a house of cards when it comes into a courtroom, that's where the defense can do really well. Those are two examples. Casey Anthony, no, no cause of death. They acquitted her, even though everyone's like, she's so guilty. Oh, my God, she was doing the hot body contest. She, they didn't know where Kaylee was for a month. You know, she lied all the time. Fine. But the jurors are like, where's the beef? You know, where where is this? Where, how can we convict her of homicide when we don't know how the baby died? And, you know, yet overly um, confident prosecutors in both of those cases, in my opinion. And watching Rittenhouse, I remember thinking just Dan Bramner in Seattle thinking, this isn't the way they said it was when I heard the testimony and I saw him testify and he looked like he had PTSD on the stand. You know, and I'm not a gun nut either, but I'm like, I don't think that the prosecutor's case. So I, I'm... I'm- I was struck by, I read the book, and I was struck by um, um, the amount of, the number of cases that you covered and kind of touched upon. So if anybody's interested in kind of high-profile criminal cases, you should read this book just for that alone, because it really does walk us through the age of of trials of the century, and we've had so many of them since OJ. But one line stuck out, and I'm a former prosecutor, criminal defense attorney now, uh, was that, that you and thought were horrified, and I, I, I want to say that the phrase that I recall, tell me if I'm wrong about this, that you almost vomited in your mouth when uh, Mr. Uh, Baez, is that his name, asked you to help uh, with Casey Anthony. I wish that line had come out of the script because I thought it did when he edited it. It was it was it was in the, the electronic version that I got, so maybe it's out of it. But now the whole world, or at least our hundred and fifty thousand, hundred twenty-five thousand listeners, withdrawn. But tell but tell me what your thought process is there. I don't want that in there, but but no. What Jose Baez said to me was, "Amanda Knox and Casey Anthony are very similar. You know, these these are things that could be used publicly because they've been vilified, they're this or that." And I was like. I couldn't think of anyone further from Amanda Knox in terms of personality than Casey Anthony. You know, that just wasn't an adequate comparison. But you could look at it and say, you know, they were were completely, you know, um, vilified. They were um, sexualized. They were um, guilt, you know, they get all kinds of guilt was put on them, you know, for their choices in life. They were single women that were attractive. You know, they had a lot in common. I could see what he was saying. But no, I didn't think it was a good idea to do any kind of press in Amanda's case, you know, coupled with press in um, Casey Anthony. You know, it's the... the I, uh, I just want to... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go I, ahead. I just want to emphasize that, um, you know, so, you know, the, the social media and instant judgment, uh, and, and then there's this sort of femme fatale effect where women tend to get piled on more than men. You know, you see that again and again in these cases, but... I just want to emphasize the fact that, that social media is a huge force that we have to fight against. But in a lot of these cases, the jury has done a good job of, of sort of looking at the facts. And every case that we looked at, so I, I, I agree that I looked at Rittenhouse and Ahmad Arbery coming out at the same time. And I was thinking, you know, why did one go free and the other one not? And so we asked Ann to kind of analyze the legal aspect of it. And the, my opinion is that in every case, even in the OJ trial, looking back on that in detail, I changed my mind. I think that the jury came up with the right 
verdict based on the evidence that was presented to them. So, you know, based on the evidence, there was reasonable doubt that um, that OJ committed that crime because they they had the uh, Furman, you know, on tape using the N word, and you know, and the the uh, prosecution didn't do a good job of figuring that out in advance. Um, so it, the social media is a major force that has to be fought against. But, uh, you know, a lot of these cases, I think they did come out with the correct verdict based on what was presented. I, I've never quite thought about that combination, but a weak case for the prosecution, meaning it's not a slam dunk. They don't have the person on video surveillance with a confession, with DNA. But a generally right. what happened case, a weak case for the prosecution a high-profile individual, horrific publicity against the accused can actually be a great thing for the defense. And I think part of the reason why is because a jury loves to do the work and have that inside baseball moment where they get to say to the public, maybe not explicitly, maybe not literally, but you don't know what happened in the courtroom. We do. We listened to the evidence. It wasn't what the media said. They didn't point all this stuff out. We discovered it. We figured it out. We did the right thing. So it's quite empowering. And I'm wondering, as a defense attorney, when I have that that combination, a horrible publicity... And and I'm not I'm not suggesting Bruce is giving me a funny look like don't say what you're what I think you're about to say is do nothing yeah, let the uh, let the bad publicity and you know uh, continue but whether or not that that's something one might want to consider in the statements that they make I mean we've definitely had cases with horrific publicity where we made a concerted effort as part of the defense strategy to introduce our client in a different light the light we saw him in. Right. Right. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think you, you, you want to humanize your client. I'm with you. I generally do media. I'm a media person. I don't believe in no comment, you know, in, in my cases. Excellent. Whenever Excellent. Uh, absolutely right. I mean, it, it is something I've said ever since I started practicing law, which is we defend our clients in the form in which they're attacked. And if they're attacked in the media and you don't stand right. up and say something, you're, you, you're poisoned or you've allowed the jury pool to be poisoned in, by itself, by by your inaction and lack of words, and I was also struck in by the the your development, if if I can say that, as a TV personality and how that's helped you and your clients. Uh-huh. That you you when OJ was around, you know, so many years ago, I was practicing law then. I'd been practicing for quite a while actually, uh, but that's you became better. Uh, and you realize that part of what you have to do to defend your clients is be good on TV if you're going to handle these kinds of cases. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and I found, you know, I started doing television during OJ locally. And then nationally, I started doing television, gosh, with Court TV 22 years ago. You know, CNN, MSNBC. I do some work in London, you know, um, you know, all over the place. But it's really helped me with defending my cases. And sometimes... I have my cases on that are discussed on those outlets. I'll go on CNN and talk about a case, you know, that that I'm defending. And so you're absolutely right. It's, you you're out there in an arena of public opinion, and it's a doggy dog, you know, it's a fight. And you, you, I even given what I said that if you come in as the underdog, you know, with the media, 
you can often win a case because there's so much pile on, you know, from the press and jurors are offended and they go to the truth facts and you win. Aside from that, you know, that can happen, but you've got to defend your, your person or your persons. And didn't you see, like, it sure seemed like Weinstein and Epstein, they didn't seem to have a lot of that happening. I was going to literally ask you that question. If you were hired by the defense in Harvey Weinstein prior to the Manhattan trial, what kind of a thing, you know, what kind of strategies could one use to push back against the, I don't want to call it a sea, but an ocean of hate dressed, synchronized in the same colors? That's beautifully said. You know, I think he, he made a mistake of kind of doing the casting couch, you know, analysis as some justification and kind of this is what they do and he's famous and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he probably is likable. He was so hard to look at. You know, that was part of it, too. You know, humanize it. Maybe have him give some interviews and have some people stick up for him. Not everybody, but really solid people stick up for him, including his wife, if she would have done it. But it just kind of came out like, I'm Harvey Weinstein, and this is just what happens in Hollywood. That's the defense I saw. And I can tell you, I cannot remember any lawyer standing up for him or him standing up for himself. And you know what's ama- that's- ma- that's amazing about that case is the lawyers he had are quite familiar with the press. They're in the press all the time. So, but remember how you them being out there? No, they weren't for him. You're absolutely correct. They were not for him, not in that way at all. And he never gave an interview. And I, I said this at the time, which his looks hurt him tremendously because nobody thinks nobody, this is just grotesque maybe. And I shouldn't say it, but nobody thinks that he, somebody would voluntarily have sex with him. Exactly. How's that? Exactly. And on that what note, about for an Oscar? For an Oscar. <laughs> on that note, hey, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, appreciate your, your your comments here. And I we really did enjoy the book, uh, Justice in the Age of Judgment. Good luck with it. From Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse on the battle for due process in the digital age. Anne and Doug Bremner. Um, if you're I, interested in all the high profile cases of the last 20 years, you've got to read this book. Well, almost the last 30 years now. It goes back to 1994. It goes back to OJ. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank all you. Right, thanks a lot. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.